You're listening to Randall Wallace Presents, formerly Bridging the Political Gap, the number one American history podcast of 2024 by Feedspot.com. Nope. No, not really. No, I didn't know about that. I'm really not surprised because I was around during that era. Something I never really thought about, like, associated with it. It's not what you associate Nixon with. So when I think of civil rights, I think of Abraham Lincoln, and that's really it. Even though it was gutsy, we were ready for it. In 1954, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in Brown v. Board of Education that segregation in public schools was unconstitutional. By 1970, seven southern states continued to drag their feet. President Nixon took office in 1969 and decided to take action. No man can be fully free while his neighbor is not. To go forward at all is to go forward together. This means black and white together as one nation, not two. On October 29, 1969, the United States Supreme Court ordered the immediate desegregation of public schools in the American South. Let me be very direct and very candid. Unitary school system must replace the dual school system throughout the United States. He declared Brown to be right in both constitutional and human terms. Nixon appointed Secretary of Labor George Shultz to help lead the effort. The law having been determined, it is the responsibility of those in the federal government and particularly the responsibility of the President of the United States to uphold the law. And I shall meet that responsibility. The President met his responsibility and leaders in each community stood up to theirs. The school openings were peaceful and the dual school system was finally dismantled. Before Nixon took office, 68% of black children in the South were attending all black schools. By 1974, it was issues that came to a large degree from my involvement 
in something called the Armor Automation Committee. The Armor Meatpacking Company mm -hmm. and the unions they dealt with created this committee and they appropriated some money for it to deal with problems of automation, which largely involved the closing of plants and what happened after that. <clears throat> so I was involved in a number of these things and in uh, I had an experience I'll always remember we was a plant was closed in Fort Worth. So we went down to Fort Worth, myself, the person who was working with me, the management representative, and the union representative, who was a very able guy, happened to be black. We go down to the hotel, and I step up and I ask for my room. They said, so we have a nice suite for you, and I signed up. Management guy, yeah, we have room for you. Labor guy steps up and they said, I'm sorry, we don't have any no. room left. No. And so he did something none of us had thought to do. He whipped out his confirmation of a reservation. And the clerk was a little um, yeah. annoyed, so he went back, consulted with somebody, and came back out again. He said, I'm sorry, we have no reservation. And I said, well, you gave me a suite, so that has two rooms, so there is a room. Put an extra bed in that suite and he'll have a room. And the clerk was sort of startled and so he registered him. It was the first time a black person had gotten registered in that hotel. And I thought to myself, you read about discrimination, but I experienced it. So I know it's real. And then of course we saw in our work that a lot of the people that were displaced were black. And so we worked with them and we got to know them some and their skills and their abilities. We had some very um, uh, dramatic experiences that um, had an impact on me. So when it came to uh, taking action to change the situation, that felt very natural to me. And the Philadelphia plan was about the building trades, with whom I got along fine. But in the building trades, there were no blacks in the, in the skills. And so the Philadelphia plan said, you know, not have quotas or anything, but it just said, you've got to have some, got to hire some people, and you ought to have an objective, and you ought to have a timetable, and get some, that's the way you manage anything, manage that. And of course, it became very controversial. And I remember there was a vote about it, and I was called up to testify. And I looked up, and here the counsel that was going to question me was a lawyer that I knew very distinguished, powerful guy. I said, oh my God, what's he going to do to me? And he said, you're installing a quota system. I said, no, I'm not. I'm replacing one. He said, what do you mean you're replacing one? I said, there's been a quota system here for a long time. The quota is zero. It's been very effective. So we're trying to dispose of a, of a quota system, not create one. Anyway, we had the argument, 
And we won on a Senate vote. And I have over there hanging on my wall the tally sheet kept by the Republican leader in the House, then Scott, Hugh Scott. But President Nixon backed me in this. I had discussed it with him, of course, and he stood right with me. Anyway, the president decided that come the next um, school season, which would have been in 1970, uh, his decision was to insist that the schools be desegregated. This is all these years after the Brown decision. The schools in the South are still segregated. And in order to implement it, he work on the implementation, he appointed a, a committee. Vice President Agnew was made the chairman. I was the vice chairman. And Agnew said he wouldn't touch the issue with a 10-foot pole. Wouldn't have anything to do with it. So I became the chairman. De facto, or, or did you actually replace him? Well, I was the de facto chairman. And I worked, Pat Moynihan was in the White House then, and a man named Len Garman, who was in the White House. The three of us, along with some other people, Don Rumsfeld was involved. He was head of the Office, Office of Economic Opportunity. And we developed a strategy in which we identified people in each of the states. There were seven states involved. Black, whites, equal numbers. And we said, let us, we're not going to have any attention to what their politics are. And we, what we want are real people, that is, people who represent the point of view of their constituents, in a sense, and are not duty-bound to agree with each other, then, but they are people of significance. And so we recruited these groups. And... We had a little program and invite them up to Washington and we'd sit them down in the Roosevelt Room and open up the discussion. And the first group was from Mississippi. And of course they started arguing about whether uh, desegregation, integration of the schools was a good thing. By and large the whites were saying it's not a good thing. And Education's perfectly adequate, and the blacks were saying no. And it was a good-spirited argument, and I let it go until I felt it had they had gotten it out of their system a little bit. And then I had John Mitchell, who was the attorney general, on call, and I'd tap something, and, and I'd invite him in. He was thought of as the tough guy who was... Uh, the champion of the Southern whites. So I would say, well, Mr. Attorney General, when the school's open, what are you going to do? And he said, we're going to enforce law, which meant insist on desegregation. I said, thank you very much. Go. And then I said to the group, well, it's been an interesting discussion about the merits, but the discussion is kind of irrelevant. The point is, it's going to happen. You may like it, you may not like it. It's going to happen. So, the question is, how can you manage it? And you're the plant manager, and you live in X town, and you have a stake in the school system, and how good it is. 
You have a stake in stability in your community and so on. So let's not argue about whether it's a good idea. Let's have a discussion of what you're going to do to manage it. And we had a little money to help very flexibly applicable. And after a while, people got into it and they, they, they began to work together and had that. And then I would send a signal in to the president and he'd give us the word and invite us to the Oval Office, which is right across the hall from the Roosevelt Room. And President Nixon was magnificent. And he said to them, well, here we are in the Oval Office. Think of the decisions that have been made here. And we're involved in another great decision in our country. And I've made my decision. But in a country like ours, that's not enough. People make decisions in states and communities and neighborhoods if this is going to work. So now we're looking for you to make your decisions. And people went out of there on cloud nine. They're inspired. Did he do this for each of the seven? Well, we did it for six, and it went very well each time. The one left over was Louisiana. And so I suggested, and Pat and Garmin and I suggested, that instead of having the people come to Washington, we go to New Orleans. And we could have the Louisiana group in the morning, and then we could invite the co-chairman of each of the groups to come to New Orleans. And in the afternoon, we've had a meeting of the co-chairman, and this was not too long before the school year would open. It would be kind of a kickoff. So Vice President Agnew said, Mr. President, don't go. There, you'll be sitting in that room, Half the people will be white, half the people will be black. There's going to be blood in the streets of the South. There's going to be blood on your hands if you go. Don't go. So the president looks at me. I don't. He wouldn't have held the meeting if he hadn't made up his mind. But anyway, he looks at me, well, what do you say? I said, well, maybe the vice president is right. I don't know. But you've met with these people who have come up here. And they're good people, you can see that. And they're very well motivated, and we've been working with them. And whatever happens, you're the president. So I think we should do as good as we can, and going down there should help. So down we go. And I go down the night before with Pat and Lynn, and we start our meeting with the Louisiana group. And I'm very confident because we've done this six times. And all of a sudden it dawns on me, it's one thing to bring people to the White House. It's another thing to get them in a hotel room in their hometown, not the same setting. So we had a struggle. We almost got them there, but we didn't have them. And all of a sudden I get word, president has landed. President's 10 minutes out, president's five minutes out. So I adjourn. I go to the president, I say, Mr. President, and I'm thinking of Agnew. Um, always before it was all teed up, but you got to tee it up yourself this time because we're not quite there. And he came in and he did a wonderful job and turned him around and it worked. And then we uh, had our overall meeting and went very well. And the, actually the opening of the schools went very smoothly. 
and Len Garment went around to the main uh, television stations and media people, and he said, suppose a hundred schools open and there's some violence at one of them, what is the story? If you think the story is violence, you're wrong. The story is mostly overwhelmingly peaceful. Anyway, we didn't have any violence, and it worked. And I give the president a lot of credit for standing up to that, and, and particularly down in New Orleans. <laughs> I had a lump in my throat. That was risky. It was risky, yeah. But it was, it was dumb of me not to realize that it's one thing to bring people to the White House, and there they are in the Oval Office. In a hotel room in New Orleans, it's not the same. Just the school system that Richard Nixon desegregated. He was actually a, a very much a champion of civil rights in America, and George Schultz was his right arm in this area. And you'll hear here about the labor unions who had a quota system, which that quota was zero African-Americans in Philadelphia uh, as part of the la their labor union force there. And here George Schultz will talk about going to work with President Nixon backing him to change that in Philadelphia with the Philadelphia plan. A series called Perspectives by the Long Now Foundation when they were interviewing uh, George Schultz about the Philadelphia plan. Don't really recognize this. Uh, you know, a lot. Of, I was a student demonstrator. I was anti-war. Was not a big fan of Richard Nixon. But some remarkable things happened under Nixon. He didn't start the war. Kennedy and Johnson. Right. He inherited it. Agreed. But you did some remarkable things as Secretary of Labor. And one of the really interesting things was around labor unions, and in particular the construction workers in Philadelphia, when you uh, tackled integration in the labor unions and the inability or the, of, of blacks to get jobs in construction. Tell us about that. Well, I, when I became Secretary of Labor, they told me it was an impossible job for a Republican because the department was a wholly owned subsidiary of the FLCIO. And I brought in a really good people, bunch of people, and the staff there knocked themselves out for us. So I always say the people who are in government the permanent career people, they're there to serve. And if you'll work with them, they'll work with you. But at any rate, uh, one of the jobs of the Secretary of Labor at the time was to worry about discrimination in the workplace. And I had quite a lot of experience with it beforehand. And we found in Philadelphia, there were no blacks in the, in the skilled construction trades at all, zero, for a long period. And it was obvious there were perfectly skilled people around there. And so, we, don't, we developed something we called the Philadelphia Plan. We said, you've got to get some people here and hire them, and let's have some objectives, and let's have some timetables for doing it. So that became very controversial in Washington. And I'm hauled before a Senate committee. I'm, you know, they sit up here, and they look down on you. And so they said, you're trying to establish a quota system. I said, I'm trying to replace one. It's been a quota system here for a long time, but the quota has been zero. It's been very effective. And the only way to break it up is to hit it with a sledgehammer, and that's what I'm trying to do. But at any rate, there was finally a vote in the Senate, and the Republican leader, Hugh Scott, from Pennsylvania, gave me his score sheet. After it was done, I have it framed in my office. My side won by 10 votes, Republicans and Democrats on both sides of the issue. 
But anyway, it was a lesson, and I was very uh, <clears throat> heartened by the fact that President Nixon supported me all the way without hesitation. I had learned something about him earlier, though. <clears throat> he was a strategist. If you went to him with just something, no strategy he didn't like. As George Shultz said in this, in this previous segment, Richard Nixon was a strategist, and that's what you're going to start to see develop over the next few episodes, how he had a strategy to deal with the Chinese, which led to bringing the Soviet Union into the, into, to the table to work on detente, kind of pitting the two of them against each other, and that put North Vietnam off on an island by itself um, so that you could force towards the end of the war because they didn't have uh, quite the same amount of support they were getting from their two big benefactors. Winston Lord here is going to explain some of that about what Richard Nixon's big global Cold War strategy was. I have served seven American presidents of both parties, Republican and Democrat, beginning with President John F. Kennedy and ending with President Bill Clinton. Although I have great admiration for the leaders I have served, none have thought so strategically about foreign policy as President Richard Nixon. My name is Winston Lord. I served as the third U.S. Ambassador to the People's Republic of China, the State Department Director of Policy Planning, President of the Council on Foreign Relations, and Assistant Secretary of State for East Asian and Pacific Affairs. In the Nixon White House, I was the Principal Assistant to Dr. Henry Kissinger on the National Security Council. I was with the President and National Security Advisor in virtually every major diplomatic event that took place during the administration. Let me give you a snapshot of what the world looked like at the time. By the late 1960s, the United States military had committed over half a million troops to fight in the jungles of Vietnam. By 1968, nearly 60,000 Americans and over two million Vietnamese on both sides were killed. Both casualties and domestic protests were mounting. The war in Vietnam was presenting the United States with a credibility problem at home and abroad, and with both allies and enemies alike. In addition, we had mutual hostility and no contact with one-fifth of humanity. We were in a tense standoff with the Soviet Union, which was rapidly expanding its nuclear arsenal. Much of the Middle East was under the influence of Soviet arms. At home, there were turmoil and division, with demonstrations against the Vietnam War, racial strife, and assassination of national leaders. As Nixon was gearing up for the 1968 presidential campaign, he urged Americans to think more dynamically about Asia in an influential article he wrote in the October 1967 edition of Foreign Affairs magazine, called Asia After Vietnam. He said, quote, a small country on the tip of the continent has filled the screen of our minds, but it does not fill the map, he wrote. Meanwhile, in 1968, the Soviet Union was enforcing compliance to its Warsaw Pact when it rolled Soviet tanks into Czechoslovakia and lined up several divisions along the Usuri River border with the People's Republic of China. Facing this challenging landscape, Nixon and Kissinger began carrying out a strategic approach on foreign policy. 
They sought to end the Vietnam War on an honorable basis by seeking a peace agreement through secret negotiations and strengthening South Vietnamese forces to take over combat while American forces withdrew. At the same time, they resisted North Vietnamese pressures. With the help of American air cover, the South Vietnamese Army defended its homeland against an all-out onslaught from the Soviet-backed North Vietnamese Army in the spring of 1972. Meanwhile, the administration moved to make progress with both communist giants, the Soviet Union and China. Always thinking like a chess master, several steps ahead, President Nixon wrote to Dr. Kissinger just 10 days into the administration to explore possibilities of rapprochement with the Chinese. Nixon felt that if he achieved an opening with the Chinese, this would spur flexibility from a concerned Soviet Union. He would be able to seize on division within the communist bloc and achieve better relations with both countries than they had with each other. In addition, Nixon sought, in breaking ground in triangular diplomacy, to isolate Hanoi from its two biggest patrons. He also sought to stabilize Asia and show that American diplomacy was that hamstrung by the Vietnam War. After two years of talking to China through various secret channels, a breakthrough occurred via Pakistan and the curious tale of the U.S. ping-pong team being invited to China. As a result of Kissinger's secret visit to Beijing, President Nixon shocked the world on July 15, 1971, by announcing that he would be the first president to visit the People's Republic of China. Premier Zhou Enlai, on behalf of the government of the People's Republic of China, has extended an invitation to President Nixon to visit China. President Nixon has accepted the invitation with pleasure. Moscow, after hearing the news of the China opening, agreed to an immediate summit and moved toward pacts on arms control and Berlin. Nixon's February 1972 trip was truly the week that changed the world, connecting America to one-fifth of the world's people after nearly a quarter century of mutual isolation and enmity. Symbolically, he shook hands with Premier Zhou Enlai upon arriving in China. At the end of that historic trip, Nixon and the Chinese leadership issued the joint Shanghai communique. This unique document candidly expressed differences between the two nations, which gave credibility to the areas where they did converge, including balancing the Soviet Union. While the U.S. and China had major differences and worldviews, they postponed tough obstacles so as to launch a new relationship. China's leadership sought ties with a country separated by 3,000 miles of Goshen to balance their communist neighbor from whom they were facing security threats. In brief, while each side stated its differences outright, they both agreed on general principles that would guide peaceful relations moving forward. The two sides stated an ambiguous one-China policy, with the U.S. government acknowledging that Chinese on both sides of the Taiwan Strait adhere to this principle. Meanwhile, the U.S. maintained diplomatic relations and a defense treaty with Taiwan. In May 1972, Nixon visited Moscow, 
where he negotiated the strategic arms limitation talks, which resulted in multiple agreements, including the anti-ballistic missile treaty. The two sides agreed in principle to a treaty that limited each to only one missile launching site and 100 interceptor missiles. The United States and the Soviet Union were limited to defending just a small fraction of their respective lands, and thus kept both subject to the deterrent effect of the other's strategic weapons. They also put a cap on offensive missiles where Moscow had been outpacing Washington. This marked the beginning of an era of detente, or easing of tensions, with the two great superpowers. While it wasn't an end to all Soviet pressure, it put the relationship on a more stable basis and paved the way for successor administrations eventually to win the Cold War. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. By the end of 1972, the Nixon-Kissinger team were three for three. America opened relations with China, achieved arms control and detente with the Soviet Union, and ended the Vietnam War and brought all American POWs home. South Vietnam fell to Hanoi's invasion in 1975, though the accord had given them every chance to succeed. If it weren't for the shameful actions of Congress to deny Saigon much-needed military and economic aid, as the Soviets supplied for Hanoi, the fate of Vietnam might well have had a different outcome. During his second administration, the Watergate scandal proved, of course, to be an immense distraction from the president's policy agenda, and then removed him from office. There was still much to be done, including strengthening alliances and starting negotiations in the Middle East. Despite the growing scandal, progress was made on the latter. Much to the world's surprise, on October 6, 1973, Egypt and Syria launched a surprise attack against America's ally, Israel. Egyptian tanks crossed the Suez Canal, and the Israeli defense forces incurred significant losses. Nixon saw a chance for American diplomacy, but knew that our friend Israel needed further military support. Many in the American bureaucracy thought that shipping arms to Israel would be provocative to the Arabs. Nixon overrode their concerns and ordered an immediate airlift of war materials to the Jewish state. Quote, send them everything that can fly, Nixon ordered his national security advisor, Dr. Kissinger. Israeli defense forces were able to recover their losses and surrounded the Egyptian Third Army near the Suez Canal. Where Nixon saw crisis, he also saw opportunity. He sent Kissinger abroad to freeze the battlefield situation. Israel was sobered by its initial setback. Egypt had not suffered a humiliating defeat. Thus, both sides were prepared to negotiate. The Israelis and Egyptians agreed to a ceasefire under the aegis of an American-Soviet agreement. While Nixon insisted on UN peacekeepers to enforce the agreement, the Soviets were eager to send in their own troops. Nixon immediately ordered U.S. forces to DEFCON 3, a state of increased military readiness. The Soviets backed down. The stage for further diplomacy was now set. All sides involved agreed to disengage their forces. 
Later, Nixon became the first president to tour the Middle East in June 1974, just two months before he resigned. Anwar Sadat did the unthinkable and visited Israel in 1977. And in 1978, Egypt and Israel officially normalized relations through the Camp David Accords. I was proud to be part of the Nixon administration. We made the world safer and more peaceful. We ended the Vietnam War and brought the POWs home. We opened China and transformed the global landscape. We limited stockpiles of nuclear weapons between the United States and the Soviet Union and stabilized our relations. And we set the stage for the Middle East peace process. Through these diplomatic triumphs, Nixon restored American credibility as a global leader rather than being dogged down in a war and domestic turmoil. And he lifted the spirits of the American people who had been demoralized by a turbulent decay. I am Ambassador Winston Lord, and thank you for watching. your host for Bridging the Political Gap. I want to thank you first for tuning in to our podcast and invite you to come to our website, randallwallace.com. There you can get a copy of our book, Always Vote Your Conscience, Don't Take It Personally, and Don't Fight the Same Old Battles Over and Over Again, with a lot of policy suggestions and things that I think everyone could embrace, an argument for why we need to be working together instead of fighting with each other. Also, you can take a look at the first 11 episodes of this podcast, which was a podcast documentary that looked at the World War II generation of bipartisan leadership that built the American century and the lessons we can learn from them to apply to today's situations. Again, thanks for tuning in to our podcast. And if you've enjoyed our show, please leave us a review at wherever you get your podcast. And now, let's get back to the show. Tell us about the decision to put buses around the White House. I was in the Justice Department crisis group when we were trying to think through how do we protect the White House. And I had started working on how to respond to major demonstrations right with the counter-inaugural in 1969. And had sort of developed a theory about how to do it, is that you present the least amount of potential provocation violence to those who are coming to demonstrate. But you keep in reserve all of the potential to respond to it if an attack occurs or if they get through your line. 
And I remember a meeting in the Justice Department uh, presided over by Richard Kleindienst, uh, the Deputy Attorney General and others who had different ways of approaching demonstrations. And I remembered the conversation, it wasn't lighthearted necessarily, but um, uh, there was a, a, trying to think of his name, uh, Bill McCaffrey, who was a lieutenant general at the time, who I think was the commanding officer of the military district around Washington, D.C. And he and I were talking with each other, and I think I said, well, you know, in the old westerns, uh, John Wayne just used to circle the wagons. And that was enough to be able to protect people inside the wagon train. And that led off that, well, you know, we've used buses before at different places in the city when there have been demonstrations. And it just, one thing led to another and said, well, why don't we consider just basically leasing buses from the metropolitan districts, the utilities that, that run these bus companies and circle the wagons? And um, we did. And it, I think it turned out to be a good good decision. Um, I, I remember saying in the meeting, look, what's the worst that they can do? They can, they can punch uh, holes in the tires, they can break the windows, and they can write graffiti on the buses. But they're not going to get to the fence. And we can put a cordon of people there, and if they try to come over, we can squirt them with some tear gas, and they'll slide back down the other side. Um, and to me, it's a different it's different looking at a bus than it is looking at a cordon of SWAT-clad uh, policemen, which to me invites a confrontation. And I was a firm believer then, and I still am to this day, that uh, you have to provide the protection, but you do it in a way that is the least provocative and likely to incent an attack. Good evening, my fellow Americans. Tonight I would like to talk to you about a major new initiative for peace. When I authorized operations against the enemy sanctuaries in Cambodia last April, I also directed that an intensive effort be launched to develop new approaches for peace in Indochina. In Ireland on Sunday, I met with the chiefs of our delegation to the Paris talks. This meeting marked the culmination of a government-wide effort begun last spring on the negotiation front. After considering the recommendations of all my principal advisors, I am tonight announcing new proposals for peace in Indochina. This new peace initiative has been discussed with the governments of South Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. All support it. It has been made possible in large part by the remarkable success of the Vietnamization program over the past 18 months. Tonight I want to tell you what these proposals are and what they mean. First, I propose that all armed forces throughout Indochina cease firing their weapons and remain in the positions they now hold. This would be a ceasefire in place. It would not in itself be an end to the conflict, but it would accomplish one goal all of us have been working toward, an end to the killing. I do not minimize the difficulty of maintaining a ceasefire in a guerrilla war where there are no front lines. But an unconventional war may require an unconventional truce. Our side is ready to stand still and cease firing. 
I ask that this proposal for a ceasefire in place be the subject for immediate negotiation. And my hope is that it will break the logjam in all the negotiations. This ceasefire proposal is put forth without preconditions. The general principles that should apply are these. A ceasefire must be effectively supervised by international observers, as well as by the parties themselves. Without effective supervision, a ceasefire runs the constant risk of breaking down. All concerned must be confident that the ceasefire will be maintained and that any local breaches of it will be quickly and fairly repaired. The ceasefire should not be the means by which either side builds up its strength by an increase in outside combat forces in any of the nations of Indochina. And a ceasefire should cause all kinds of warfare to stop. This covers the full range of actions that have typified this war, including bombing and acts of terror. A ceasefire should encompass not only the fighting in Vietnam, but in all of Indochina. Conflicts in this region are closely related. The United States has never sought to widen the war. What we do seek is to widen the peace. Finally, a ceasefire should be part of a general move to end the war in Indochina. A ceasefire in place would undoubtedly create a host of problems in its maintenance. But it's always been easier to make war than to make a truce. To build an honorable peace, we must accept the challenge of long and difficult negotiations. By agreeing to stop the shooting, we can set the stage for agreements on other matters. A second point of the new initiative for peace is this. I propose an Indochina peace conference. At the Paris talks today, we're talking about Vietnam. But North Vietnamese troops are not only infiltrating, crossing borders, and establishing bases in South Vietnam, they are carrying on their aggression in Laos and Cambodia as well. An international conference is needed to deal with the conflict in all three states of Indochina. The war in Indochina has been proved to be of one piece. It cannot be cured by treating only one of its areas of outbreak. The essential elements of the Geneva Accords of 1954 and 1962 remain valid as a basis for settlement of problems between states in the Indochina area. And we shall accept the results of agreements reached between these states. While we pursue the convening of an Indochina peace conference, we will continue the negotiations in Paris. Our proposal for a larger conference can be discussed there as well as through other diplomatic channels. The Paris talks will remain our primary forum for reaching a negotiated settlement until such time as a broader international conference produces serious negotiations. The third part of our peace initiative has to do with the United States forces in South Vietnam. In the past 20 months, I have reduced our troop ceilings in South Vietnam by 165,000 men. During the spring of next year, these withdrawals will total more than 260,000 men, about one-half the number that were in South Vietnam when I took office. As the American combat role and presence have decreased, American casualties have also decreased. Our casualties since the completion of the Cambodian operation were the lowest for a comparable period in the last four and a half years. We are ready now to negotiate an agreed timetable for complete withdrawals as part of an overall settlement. 
we are prepared to withdraw all our forces as part of a settlement based on the principles I spelled out previously and the proposals I am making tonight. Fourth, I ask the other side to join us in a search for a political settlement that truly meets the aspirations of all South Vietnamese. Three principles govern our approach. We seek a political solution that reflects the will of the South Vietnamese people. A fair political solution should reflect the existing relationship of political forces in South Vietnam. And we will abide by the outcome of the political process agreed upon. Let there be no mistake about one essential point. The other side is not merely objecting to a few personalities in the South Vietnamese government. They want to dismantle the organized non-communist parties and ensure the takeover by their party. They demand the right to exclude whomever they wish from government. This patently unreasonable demand is totally unacceptable. As my proposals today indicate, we are prepared to be flexible on many matters, but we stand firm for the right of all the South Vietnamese people to determine for themselves the kind of government they want. We have no intention of seeking any settlement at the conference table other than one which fairly meets the reasonable concerns of both sides. We know that when the conflict ends, the other side will still be there, and the only kind of settlement that will endure is one that both sides have an interest in preserving. Finally, I propose the immediate and unconditional release of all prisoners of war held by both sides. War and imprisonment should be over for all these prisoners. They and their families have already suffered too much. I propose that all prisoners of war, without exception, without condition, be released now to return to the place of their choice. And I propose that all journalists and other innocent civilian victims of the conflict be released immediately as well. The immediate release of all prisoners of war would be a simple act of humanity, but it could be even more. It could serve to establish good faith, the intent to make progress, and thus improve the prospects for negotiation. We are prepared to discuss specific procedures to complete the speedy release of all prisoners. The five proposals that I have made tonight can open the door to an enduring peace in Indochina. Ambassador Bruce will present these proposals formally to the other side in Paris tomorrow. He will be joined in that presentation by Ambassador Lam, representing South Vietnam. Let us consider for a moment what the acceptance of these proposals would mean. Since the end of World War II, there's always been a war going on somewhere in the world. The guns have never stopped firing. By achieving a ceasefire in China and by holding firmly to the ceasefire in the Middle East, we could hear the welcome sound of peace throughout the world for the first time in a generation. We could have some reason to hope that we had reached the beginning of the end of war in this century. We might then be on the threshold of a generation of peace. The 
proposals I made tonight are designed to end the fighting throughout Indochina and to end the impasse and negotiations in Paris. Nobody has anything to gain by delay and only lives to lose. There are many nations involved in the fighting in Indochina. Tonight, all those nations except one announce their readiness to agree to a ceasefire. The time has come for the government of North Vietnam to join its neighbors in a proposal to quit making war and to start making peace. As you know, I just returned from a trip which took me to Italy, Spain, Yugoslavia, England, and Ireland. Hundreds of thousands of people cheered me as I drove through the cities of those countries. They were not cheering for me as an individual. They were cheering for the country I was proud to represent, the United States of America. For millions of people in the free world, the non-aligned world, and the communist world, America is the land of freedom, of opportunity, of progress. I believe there's another reason they welcomed me so warmly. In every country I visited, despite their wide differences in political systems and national backgrounds, in my talks with leaders all over the world, I find that there are those who may not agree with all of our policies. But no world leader to whom I have talked fears that the United States will use its great power to dominate another country or to destroy its independence. We can be proud that this is the cornerstone of America's foreign policy. There is no goal to which this nation is more dedicated and to which I am more dedicated than to build a new structure of peace in the world where every nation, including North Vietnam as well as South Vietnam, can be free and independent with no fear of foreign aggression or foreign domination. I believe every American deeply believes in his heart that the proudest legacy the United States can leave during this period when we are the strongest nation of the world is that our power was used to defend freedom, not to destroy it, to preserve the peace, not to break the peace. It is in that spirit that I make this proposal for a just peace in Vietnam and in Indochina. I ask that the leaders in Hanoi respond to this proposal in the same spirit. Let us give our children what we have not had in this century, a chance to enjoy a generation of peace. Thank you and good night. As 1970 wore down, Richard Nixon ended up having a surprise summit meeting at the White House with a king. And not just any king, but the king of rock and roll, who wanted an ID card that made him a special drug enforcement agent. It was an extraordinary encounter between two legendary Americans, Elvis Presley and Richard Nixon. 
Mr. President, Mr. Elvis Presley. Now that single iconic image is being used as the basis of a new movie, Elvis and Nixon. Kevin Spacey plays the president. Actor Michael Shannon plays Elvis. And Colin Hanks plays an advisor. Elvis Presley. Yes, sir. The entertainer. Oh, I know who Elvis Presley is, yes. Who set this up? We caught up with Hanks at the Tribeca Film Festival, where the movie premiered. You just want to know why on earth that happened, because it really has no reason to exist whatsoever. The year was 1970. Elvis, whose career was in a downward spiral, flew to Washington on a whim, writing a bizarre six-page letter on the plane, offering to help in the war on drugs. I have done an in-depth study of drug abuse and communist brainwashing techniques, he wrote. And I am right in the middle of the whole thing where I can and will do the most good. Elvis delivered the letter himself. I need to get this letter to the president. It's Elvis. Thank you. Thank you very much. Nixon's advisors were perplexed, but they approved the meeting because they felt it would be good for Nixon's image. You and me, we rose from nothing. But look where I am today. Look where you are. In the movie, Elvis demonstrates karate moves in the Oval Office and asks Nixon to slap his knuckles. Come on, harder. Harder. Let it out. Let it out. Those are the steel claws of a tiger. None of that actually happened. The real meeting lasted just a few minutes. Elvis showed Nixon some photos of himself with law enforcement officers. Then they posed for that famous picture. Elvis's best friend, Jerry Schilling, was there. It was a little intimidating. So he pushed me in and said, oh, come on, have some fun. And then the president hits me on the arm like a guy's guy. The iconic photograph is the most requested image in the National Archives. Yes, it's more popular than the flag raising at Iwo Jima. And the Times Square kiss taken the day World War II ended. Even the moon landing plays second fiddle to Elvis and Nixon. Well, let's have some fun uh, this morning. Uh, how many of you have seen the movie Forrest Gump? <laughs> this is my Forrest Gump experience. Remember in that photograph, they show him with Lyndon Johnson and other presidents, and like, how did he end up in those situations? Well, this is my Forrest Gump experience. It's also um, the one completely fun day I had on the White House staff. So it's, uh, it's not to say, Tim, that there weren't other great days, but this was by far uh, the most fun day. So what happened? Well, uh, this was, a, I believe, a Friday morning, December 21, 1970. I'm sitting in my office. I've had two staff meetings, one at 7.30, one at 8 o'clock, getting ready for the day, and I get a call from Dwight Chapin. Dwight Chapin is the appointment secretary to the president. He said, are you sitting down? Yeah, I'm sitting down. The king is here. I looked at the president's schedule. I said, what king? There are no kings on the president's schedule. <laughs> he said, no, 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 not any two-bit king. The king, the king of rock, he's here. Right, Dwight. Okay, this is going to be a long day because I'm not quite believing this. And so I jump out and I said, you know, excuse me, but this is Mr. Elvis Presley. He wrote a letter to the president. He just wanted to drop it off. And they were wonderful. We'll make sure that Mr. Presley's letter gets taken to the president. So we go now to the Washington Hotel, the hotel where Elvis had stopped in before, before he came and got me. And he said, 
Jerry, you stay here. I'm going to John Finlater's office. Here's my number, but you stay here for the, for the president's call. I go, yeah, sure. You know, I read all these Howard Hughes books, and I'm thinking, you know, he'd leave people in a hotel for a year. So I'm checking out the menu. You know, I'm, I could be here a long time. What Elvis's mission was, was to go to the Federal Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs. Through rock and roll, he felt it was kind of promoting a drug culture, and he felt with his influence behind the scenes, he could make things a little better, and that's why he wanted this badge. He said, no, I'm reading a letter from him right now. It's written on American Airlines stationery. He wants to meet the president. I said, okay, and he wants to help the president on the drug problem. Okay, uh, why don't you read the letter and then tell me whether or not you think we ought to arrange a meeting with the president? Now, in the White House, we have a system called the red tag system. Uh, this is before emails, and you could send things immediately from office to office. So he put a little red tag on this American Airlines stationery, and a, a messenger ran it over to my office. And he brought it in, and I started going through it. And uh, I looked at it and said, well, you know, this is like fifth or sixth grade quality writing. Um, Dwight's daughter could have done this. this uh, now, I belong to a group of about eight people who play practical jokes on each other all the time. So I thought, I'm being set up. This is the Christmas practical joke that Dwight is playing on me. So I didn't quite believe what was happening. So I call over to Dwight after he had a little time to read it. And he said, Bob Haldeman has approved the meeting. Well, that Bob Haldeman was not known to a lot of those younger staff people as droll uh, or funny. But what, what Dwight wrote in the memo is that I think the president ought to start meeting with some young people outside the government. Let's start with Elvis Presley. And, uh, <laughs> in the corner of the memo, Haldeman wrote, you must be kidding. <laughs> But that he approved it. He put H in the approval section. So now I've got the meeting set. So I called back over to the hotel, talked to Jerry Schilling. The meeting is on. Why don't you come back over uh, in about a half an hour and we'll set it up. So they said they would be over there. Jerry Schilling was a little giddy. He was so excited about this. He said, Elvis will be very happy. I'm, we're really looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to it, a little excited. And I think this is where you can have Full disclosure, I was a huge Elvis fan then, and the thought of taking Elvis in to meet the president was just absolutely fantastic. Elvis is gone about 40 minutes. I get a call from the White House. It's Bud Eagle Crow on the White House staff. The president has read Mr. Presley's letter and would like to see him in 30 minutes. So I called this number Elvis left me, and the head of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs answers the phone. He goes, yeah. And I said, excuse me, this is Mr. Schilling. Is there a Mr. Is Elvis Presley there? And he said, who is this? And I told him, and he said, okay. And Elvis gets on the phone, and he is he's really down. He goes, I'm not doing any good here, because Finn later would not give him the badge. And I said, well, Elvis, you just got a call. The president wants to see you at the White House in 30 minutes. So I'm out in front of the hotel. About this point, Sonny arrives from Memphis. I say, Sonny, throw your luggage there with a bellman. We're on the way to the White House. Elvis pulls up, and we go to the White House. Um, 
he had also, and I hadn't picked up on this, in the letter that he had written, which I think there's a copy of it out there in the display, you'll notice that there's a little PS at the bottom that said, and I have a gift for you which you can take now or later. But he didn't specify what that gift was. That came later. And it came as soon as they came into the lobby of the West Wing. I got a call from the head of the president's security detail, Bill Duncan. We've got a little problem, bud. I said, well, what's that? He said, well, uh, Elvis has brought a gun uh, <laughs> with him. This is a very nice gun. It's um, a, you know, a World War II Colt automatic. It's got all these battles inscribed on the barrel. It's a beautiful gun, but they're bullets in the display case. But you know we can't let him take a gun and bullets into the Oval Office. <laughs> oh my gosh, you're right. Uh, that's, a, that's a problem. Um, so I figured, well, I've got to go over there and explain uh, that we can't do it. So I jogged across West Executive Drive over to the lobby and he was there, and, and the Secret Service had commandeered the gun. Elvis was not holding it. And I had to explain, you know, no guns in the Oval Office is standard policy around here. <laughs> it's not personal to you. We just don't let people go in armed. Um, and uh, and he, he took it. He said, well, you know, I just want him to have it. I'll, I'll mention that I brought this gun. I said, that's just fine. But I said, now, what usually happens is that a gift like this, and it's a magnificent gift, and this is a display item. You, you, which, which item is it? It's, it's the one behind the barbed wire. The one? <laughs> yeah, you can't get in and reach it. You can't touch it. You don't like guns. Like that's, that's very wise. Um, so, no, no, that's, so anyway, he accepted the fact that uh, the gun wasn't going in and that it would end the president's library, and here it is. He then had shown me some of the things that he wanted to show the, the president. He had some badges from various law enforcement. Uh, departments around the country. He had a picture of Priscilla. He had a picture of Lisa Marie. And he just he just wanted to take these in and sort of show the president. Well, this next section is entitled Show and Tell uh, and Ask. Now, I had thought that because Elvis had entertained millions of people around the world, that he would walk in the Oval Office and feel at home or feel comfortable. But that wasn't the case. He walked in and he stopped right inside the door. Now, it was the president was behind his desk. This was the door that leads across to the Roosevelt Room. I had come in. The Secret Service had, had uh, ushered us in. And Ollie Atkins, who was the White House photographer, was over in the corner, ready to take snapshots of us. Elvis stopped, and he looks up in the ceiling, and emblazoned in the ceiling are eagles in the plaster. In the floor and the carpet are eagles. There are eagles all over, eagles on the service flags to the right of the president's desk. And it's like, I couldn't see what... What his face was like, because I was right behind him, but it was like, oh, oh, wow. It's just like I'm in the Oval Office. And remember, this is a, a poor boy from Tupelo, Mississippi, who has come into the Oval Office two hours after he arrived at the Northwest Gate. So he was a little awed by that surrounding. Well, I nudged him across the floor over towards the president's desk, and the badges got dumped out on the desk along with the pictures, and we go through show and tell, like we do in school. Fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth. here's a picture of my wife. Oh, this is a lovely picture, lovely. I hope I don't do, no disrespect to the president, but this, this is burned into my memory, so I'm going to give it to you just the way I heard it. I want to know who is more awkward, Elvis Presley or Richard Nixon? 
No, I was by far. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. They were cool and coordinated and smooth, but I was just stumbling around with my notepad and all the rest. Um, so he's showing the president these pictures and Lisa Maria and oh, she's pretty. It's a pretty bonnet uh, that she's wearing. And then he leans over and he says, "Do you like my cufflinks?" Well, apparently Vice President Spiro Agnew had given him cufflinks out here in California three weeks before, and the president said, oh, lovely cufflinks, reaching out, looking at them. Um, then the president figured, okay, enough of show and tell. Let's get a real formal photograph here. So he takes uh, Elvis over to the flags where the service flags are. And Ollie Atkins took several photographs there. And one of them has become an immortal photograph. I, last I heard, 39,000 or 40,000 photographs had been purchased from the National Archives of the two of them in front of the service flags. It's a profit center for the National Archives right now. And maybe here, do you get all that stuff pretty soon? Or? You're gonna get a cut. You gotta get, <laughs> get a cut. So after the photograph was taken and we've gone through show and tell, uh, they start talking about things that were not on my talking points. I have no idea where this conversation is going. And um, Elvis says, well, you know, this, uh, I've been playing Las Vegas. And the president says, yeah, I understand it's very, very difficult to play Las Vegas. And I had no idea what he was talking about. Or, when, when, when did you play Las Vegas, Mr. President? <laughs> I'm not surprised, but it's a tough room. So anyway, they talk about Las Vegas. And, 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 and then Elvis said, I do my thing just by singing. He said, uh, that's the way that I'll get my message across, the president. Good. That's, that sounds good. Um, and then he said something. You know, the Beatles came to America, and they made a lot of money, and they said some anti-American things. The president said, say what? Um, and they said they did what? And uh, he said, they said some anti-American things. The president looking at me, I don't know what he's talking about. Um, but I think at that point, this is uh, December 21, 1970. Remember, the Beatles had become probably the most popular singing group in the world. And maybe there, he had eclipsed Elvis at this point, and there was maybe just a little edge of jealousy that crept into that conversation. Then Elvis said, well, um, I've been making a study of communist brainwashing. The president was really mystified by this. <laughs> and now, he'd written this out in his letter, and I'd, he told me about it, but I couldn't see where this was going. This seemed to be going into uncharted water. Um, and then he said, and there's been a loss of respect for the flag. The president said, well, that, that we're in safeguard. Yes, I, I agree with that. And then I tried to bring it back into the purpose of the meeting. I said, uh, Mr. President, uh, Elvis wants to help us out uh, with the drug program, but we've got to keep this very quiet and private. Now, about this time in the meeting, each of them, I think, had come to the realization that their respective constituencies might not understand why they were meeting together. And so they're going, yes, I think we should keep this private. Keep, let's, keep your credibility is the way they're, you just make sure you keep your credibility. So um, then the question gets popped. Elvis looks at the president and said, Mr. President, can you get me a badge from the Bureau of Narcotics? The president looked over at me and said, oh, Bud, can we get him a badge? Um, <laughs> I thought this, but didn't say it to him. I said, you're the leader of the Western world. You want to get him a badge? We can do that. <laughs> what I did say was, yes, sir. Uh, I think we can get him a badge. We'll see that he gets one. Now, I haven't seen this before uh, in the Oval Office. 
Elvis was so overwhelmed with this and so joyous, he stepped forward and he grabs the president with his left arm. And he's hugging him. Now think of yourself, if you're a young staff person in the Oval Office, watching the King of Rock, hugging the President of the United States. They've never met each other before. Uh, you're thinking, this is the last meeting they are ever going to let me organize around here. <laughs> Can you believe this? So anyway, they step back. Um, and then Elvis said, um, would you be willing to meet my bodyguards? And the President looked at me and said, Bud, do we have time for that? <laughs> yes, Mr. President, we have some time for that. I mean, you're in this deep. You might as well just finish it off, right? I mean, it's just a... The end of my career anyway, so let's go out with... Uh, let's go out in a blaze of glory. Elvis is such a charmer. He knows right what to say to the right people, and, and the phone rings. The president wants to meet Mr. Presley's friends. So they take us down to the Oval Room. I never will forget this scene. The president didn't come to the door. Elvis came to the door. You would have thought it was Graceland, I swear. And he, he's in a great mood, and he opens the door, and the Oval Room goes way out, and it comes down, and I see at the end President Nixon signing something, and I froze. And Elvis thought I was scared. So he kind of pushes me and started laughing. He said, oh, it's okay. You know, don't be afraid. And uh, Elvis introduces us to Nixon. And we're in the Oval Room of the White House. So anyway, in came, I, I went to the Secret Service agent, asking to bring in Sonny West and Jerry Schilling, two members in good standing, as I mentioned, of the Memphis Mafia. And the president looks at him and said, well, you got a couple of big ones here, Elvis. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, and they're all standing around and not knowing what to do. And the president realizes now it's time to have them go. And the way you do that is we're going to give them something. So the president goes behind his desk and he opens the bottom left-hand drawer. Now, the gifts are arranged in that drawer according to value. Uh, if you're just coming in and you won the 4-H Club Award for Best Cow in Nebraska, the president will probably give you a golf ball. Um, uh, you might get a tie clip uh, that is made out of brass, but towards the back of the drawer are the 16-karat gold cufflinks and the, the pins, the very nice pins. I mean, valuable stuff. Elvis didn't get to be the king of rock by not knowing where the gold is. And my abiding memory of this meeting is Elvis going behind the desk with the president. <laughs> I had never seen anything like it. They're rummaging through the drawer together. <laughs> and then Elvis comes in, remember, Mr. President, they've got wives and sweethearts back into the drawer. <laughs> Out came pins and tie clasp and cufflinks, golf balls, paperweights. And the president's looking over like, he's cleaning me out, kind of thing. Uh, and so, and they have their hands full like this. I mean, Elvis is stuffing the badges and pictures back into his cape. They've got all these gifts, and they're going over to the door. They are just beside themselves. The president's figuring, you know, I've been fleeced. You know, it's just uh, nice to see you guys, fellows. Thanks for coming in. And they walked out. That, that was the Oval Office part of it. Well, um, there are some sequels that happen here. As I walked out of the Oval Office, I realized the president has promised him a badge from the Bureau of Narcotics. 
So I called over and talked to John Finlater. John Finlater was the deputy director of the Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs. And I said, John, um, Elvis has just met with the president. He said, wow, but did the president agree to give him a badge? <laughs> I said, well, yes. Uh, how did you know? Well, he was here beforehand. He asked me for one. I turned him down. But we can't give him an official badge. I said, no, not an official badge. Just get him an honorary badge. But the president wants him to have a badge, and could you bring it over to my office at 2 o'clock this afternoon? He said, well, I guess it's not too bad to have been overruled by the president of the United States. So wanting to continue this, um, this meeting with Elvis a little longer, I said, um, are you guys hungry? Would you like to have lunch in the White House mess? Yes. I mean, that's how fast the yes came to the mess. Yeah. So um, this was a power lunch beyond all power lunches. Now, the White House mess is a jaded place because people will bring guests there from the Senate, from the House. Uh, they'll bring uh, famous people from all around the country. But imagine what it's like walking into the White House mess with Elvis Presley, with that beautiful dark purple cape, medallions, two bodyguards, table for four, and I'm hosting them. You know, if bobbleheads and baseball and swivel heads, they walk in, this, what is this coming in? Oh my gosh, you know, it was just, it was the best hour I ever had in the White House mess. I don't, don't remember what I ate, probably a cheeseburger, Jamie, I think that might have been more likely, but on the way to my office, Elvis stopped off at a number of offices to greet secretaries who were incredulous. I mean, he walk in and say, hi, Elvis President, and we hug him. It's amazing. So that is the story of the day Elvis met Nixon. Uh, there are a lot of details that are coming in about what happened beforehand and what happened afterwards since I wrote the book. And just one sequel, one sequel that I want to tell you about. After Mr. Nixon resigned, uh, you remember, uh, I think he was pardoned in September, and he was stricken with phlebitis, I think, almost right away thereafter. And he was in a hospital here in Long Beach, and uh, Elvis called him up. And he said, I'm thinking about you, praying for you, hope you get better. And two years later, Elvis was in a hospital. Mr. Nixon called him up, wished him well, said, I'm praying for you. So something happened during that meeting where these two people met each other, maybe recognized some common traits, some things that they'd gone through together. I just thought that was a beautiful sort of story towards the end of it, that the two of them made contact with each other. And I think that's why this is just a great display, Tim, that you've got here. So that's a story, and I'd like to take any questions anybody might have. Yeah. I didn't know that much about him except what I had read. Uh, but as I talked to him, I sensed, too, that basically he's a very shy man. The flamboyance was covering up the shyness. Here's one of the most conservative presidents. And don't forget, just a few years before, this was the guy that was a threat to the world, uh, Elvis Presley. You know, the establishment certainly was afraid of what he was promoting. People say that because later on it was found that he had used drugs, uh, that therefore he could not be a good example. They overlooked the fact that he never used illegal drugs. It was always drugs prescribed by his physician. But I think that he was a very sincere and decent man. They became friends. I mean, this, is, this tells you the charm of Elvis Presley. He was so happy. Uh, 
He was proud that the president received him. He shared pictures of Priscilla and Lisa with the president. It was an interesting thing because I saw two greats at the top, but not at the top of their game at the top. And I think they both recognized that in each other. And I think there was some kind of um, mutual understanding. And, you know, they kept in contact. Thank you for listening to Bridging the Political Gap. If you've liked what you've heard, please share it. And we would love to hear from you and your thoughts on on our show. So if you'd like to, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast. And until next time, thanks again and so long for now.